We've been in a series in the letter to the Ephesians for about a year. We'll be finishing it uh, this summer. And we're in verses 10 through 20, so we've slowed down a little bit to get to understand this section a little better, partly because this is a summary to all that we've read before. It's a summary really to how to live in the blessings we have in Christ and how to, how to live them out, how to live in faith and obedience um, in light of those blessings. That's really, to sum up the, the letter of Ephesians, it's about the blessings of the gospel of grace, all that we have in Christ, and then what that does how, in our lives, how it changes us and changes us as God's people. So this section, in some ways, is a summary of how to live that out, how to apply it, particularly in light of the spiritual battle that we're in. And that part uh, is actually throughout this letter, we see that theme of this cosmic battle, but, but this idea of a spiritual battle um, can be a little strange to us because of our culture. We live in a materialist sort of culture. We live in a skeptical culture, a rationalistic culture um, that tends to look at the spiritual realm as just, you know, that's just old-fashioned and made up. And the Bible's not like that. The Bible's very clear. There is a spiritual realm, and it's very significant. This section really teaches us about that, that there's this spiritual battle going on, this cosmic battle that we, as believers, now find ourselves in the middle of with opposing forces coming against us. And there's things we need to learn about this battle. We need to understand what's going on, and we need to, most importantly, understand how to walk in victory. There's a victory that's been provided for us in Christ. Simply all we need to do is believe and walk it out. It's already accomplished. And, and those are important things. Again, we can sometimes neglect this aspect of the Christian life, and it's so helpful to spend time. Now, the desire here is not to slow down, to be morbid, to kind of give too much attention to the devil. Not at all. Um, we want to give adequate attention, though, so that we can be equipped to live in this victory we have in Christ. And it's my opinion, I, perhaps you agree with me, that I think we are under-equipped for Various reasons, one being that we're in a rationalistic society, a culture, and we just don't tend to think of that. Or, or often there's one aspect of the spiritual battle that we're good in and not the others. So I think we're under-equipped. So the desire here is to better equip us that we might learn to walk in what we have in Christ and learn to walk in all these blessings. I like what C.S. Lewis said about this idea of trying to avoid extremes in terms of spiritual battle and, and warfare and stuff. He says this, there are two and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. This is in his preface to the famous Screwtape Letters, which is a fictional book about spiritual warfare. And he basically tells us that, you know, to go one extreme or the other plays into his hands. God wants to equip us so we have an adequate understanding. That's the goal here. Biblical balance, avoiding uh, ignorance or skepticism on one side or obsession or fear on the other. That's our goal here. And I trust that, that God will lead us. So we're going to look at his word. We're going to look at Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, actually, just a subsection of this. And then we're going to dive into... Uh, the topic of the di diabolical schemes, the idea of the devil's schemes. We're going to uh, dig into that. But let me pray first and ask God's blessing on the reading of his word and the preaching and proclaiming of his truth. Lord, we thank you 
for your word. We thank you that you have given us uh, this truth about the devil's schemes, and you've given us in your word description, very detailed description about his schemes. We have the devil's playbook through your word, and we thank you for that, Lord, uh, because as we understand these things and as we depend on you, we can experience victory in our lives in very real ways. So I ask you, Lord, as we look at your word and as I proclaim your truth, help me, Lord, to, to proclaim it well and clearly. Help us to hear. Help us to believe and to walk in this truth. And Lord, change our lives through it. Be glorified in it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Ephesians 6, 10-13 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Again, the title is Diabolical Schemes in Ephesians 6, in particular Ephesians 6, 11. When I was young, I uh, played football. I enjoy the sport of football. Um, there are things about professional football I wouldn't endorse. There can be excessive violence. There can be worldliness that gets attached to it. But I mean, just the sport. I enjoy the sport. I, I think, I think it's a great sport. I think it's a lot of fun to, to watch. It was even more fun to play. Playing it when I was young, I got an appreciation for the physical rigor that's required. You have to be in good shape. You have to be relatively fast or large or some combination thereof. Uh, and, and I appreciate that, but it, there's also an intellectual side to it. Now, we often joke about dumb football players. Actually, to be a really good football player, you've you got to be smart. Uh, because it's very complex. The game is very complex. And at the professional level, uh, there's so much going on. It's like it, uh, a chess match, a 60-minute chess match, not only between the coaches, but between players. Because there's all these things going on, coverages and zones, and, and even the linemen. Uh, actually, it can be very complicated to be a lineman. They have all these different plays that they do. We don't know that. You just watch on TV, right? And you just like you watch some guy get the ball, and he runs, and you cheer. But there's lots going on in the game of football. Lots of strategy. The history, actually, of the game is also fascinating to look at the strategy uh, of the game uh, historically that originally it was a lot more like rugby. And basically, uh, the early way they played was that they basically gave the ball to someone who was big and fast, and big guys blocked for them. And that was what, how you won the game. You just ran down the field. You had big blockers get out in front, and the guy ran down the field. So the bigger and faster, the better. Um, and usually, though, you know, the guys for that strategy, just running, you tend to be big and not as fast. Well, then they introduced this idea of the forward pass. By the way, I'm going somewhere if you're not a sports fan. Hang in there. Uh, the idea of this, the forward pass, where now you can throw the ball, all of a sudden the quarterback became really important because he wasn't just the guy that ran with the ball or handed it to someone else. He was the guy that could orchestrate all that's going on. And all of a sudden the strategy started to switch. Now you needed just fast guys. And the really fast guys tend to be little. So all of a sudden now, it's not just big guys, it's little guys. Little fast guys, kind of big slow guys. And, and so now you have that strategy. And more or less, that's the bottom line strategy in football, is a mixture of that. And, and at the high school level and college level, they tend to lean a little more on the big guys run down the field. 
somewhat. And then at the professional level, a little more of those fast guys. But if you watch, actually, they shift guys off and on the field. Have you noticed that? Like the defenses, they'll put the big defensive line in, and then they'll put the fast defensive line in. That's because they, they're trying to predict, is the other team going to throw or are they going to run? And stuff. So that all goes on. And there's all sorts of plays. Actually, the, the title of the message you see of play there is designed out. That's a real play. That's a run, kind of like a draw off of trip left, if you know football. Um, it's a complex play, and I didn't even design what everyone was supposed to be doing. There's a, all these guys are supposed to do these things, and they all need to know their assignments. They all need to know what they're doing, and, and that's just one play, and there are lots of plays in football. And to be really good, at especially at the professional level, you have to know the schemes and the plays of the opponents. Could you imagine if a professional coach, Bill Belichick, just went into the game and had no idea what the other team was going to do? Didn't know the plays, didn't know the schemes, didn't really know his own schemes. Just was shooting from the hip. We'll figure it out. I'll, we'll just get going. We'll figure it out somehow. What would happen to him? He would lose, right? He not only lose the game, he would lose his job. His success depends on knowing the plays of the enemy. Knowing, and if he can know, hopefully through legal means, the playbook of the other team. Um, I didn't mean that in any directed way towards any individual. But if you can know like, what the other team's playbook is, you can really do well. But what I want to do today is I want to give to you the devil's playbook. We're going to look at the schemes of the devil. And it's going to be kind of like a playbook. So I just warn you ahead of time, some of this sub-series in Ephesians, we're covering more material um, than normal. So we're going to go through this playbook, and you're going to see a lot of plays that the enemy likes to run. Don't try to take all the notes on everything. If you want to, that's fine, but I think you're going to be distracted. Just listen and kind of as if you were going to read the playbook of a great NFL team for the first time. You're not going to try to memorize everything. You're just going to look at the different plays. And then just pick one play to learn about, one scheme of the devil. And choose that scheme, I would say, based on your own experience. Maybe this is a play you always get duped on. He does that reverse every time, and I always fall for it, and, I, and he gets a touchdown on me. So whatever that play is, or maybe there's someone else in your life that you know struggles, and they always get duped by something. So concentrate on that one thing. At the end, we'll have time to reflect and pray. And it would be great just to have that one play, that one scheme of the devil for you to pray about, okay? So hang in there as we cover the others. Uh, I think it will serve us to be aware of these things. What I've done is I've actually uh, simplified this uh, into three major areas, the three major sorts of schemes of the devil, lies, adversity, and affliction. I'll go into subsets under each one, but to, just to keep it simple, uh, lies, adversity, and affliction are the general three schemes of the devil. Uh, our verse in Ephesians talks about this idea of the schemes of the devil. In Ephesians 6.12, we are, we are able, we're called to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The, and, and then in 2 Corinthians 2.11, it talks about, it's a slightly different word, but in the NIV it says um, we are not unaware of his schemes or his plans and his plots, what he's thinking. A scheme, so is a plan, it's a method of attack. It's really important to get this. Really important to know that the devil is not just a random evil being. He just doesn't come and just does random stuff. You know, he, he's not like the Tasmanian devil in the old cartoons, just kind of goes about and brings destruction wherever he goes. 
He's methodical. He's intelligent. He's, he's planned things out. He has schemes he aims at. He's familiar with these schemes. He has a playbook. And actually, it's a very successful playbook that he goes to. And more than likely, he goes to maybe two or three different plays for you in your life. Your particular struggles in spiritual warfare are probably around two or three different plays that he just uses over and over again. This idea of schemes is there in Scripture. He is a scheming, planning, evil being. And so getting to know his schemes is really helpful. Because then we can begin to apply the counter-scheme, which is covered in the rest of Ephesians and really the rest of the Bible. So we're going to take time to go through this, look at these different schemes. So hang on to your hats as we go through this playbook. First, the general area of lies, and subset of that, is temptation. The Satan tempts people with lies. We see in Genesis 3, 1, uh, he tempted Adam and Eve with a lie about what God said. He said in 3, verse 1, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The implication is no, he didn't. Though he did, he, he told them not to eat. Well, he changes it, right? Not to eat of any tree. He manipulates. He lies here. He misrepresents what God said, and then he questions it. So there's deceit going on. There's basically a lie of what he says. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us the serpent deceived Eve. Jesus speaks to the devil and says when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. This is who he is. This is what he does. He's a liar. This is a huge part of his strategy. It's just to lie. He's good at lying, though. He can be deceitful. He can be manipulative. He can weave truth in. Actually, all good lies have truth in them. That's part of the deception. You say, you know, did God really say? And then you change what God said. That's the sort of stuff that he does. He, he lies, and he doesn't just lie to bad people, by the way. He lies to all sorts of people. He lied to Christ. And, and what he said to him and, and misrepresented God and God's commands. He lied to the early church. He lied to Ananias, we looked at last week, who, who had this thought in his heart that he could lie to the Holy Spirit and get away with deceiving God by keeping half the money for himself or part of the money for himself. This is something that he does. He lies and he tempts. He, he lures us with things. He says, this thing will be really good. God has prohibited that thing and it could be any sort of thing. Um, it, could, it could be any sort of, I mean, it could be sex, power apart from God, um, material goods apart from God, uh, all sorts of things. And he says, this is good. It won't hurt you. Indulge. Do this. Follow me. And he tempts us. And there's power in that temptation. It isn't just the fact of the lie. There's spiritual power that comes with it. That's important to understand, too. I don't think that, that Eve was just somehow her, you know, she wasn't on her game for the best logic at that point. There was power. The enemy was coming in with spiritual power and deceiving her. And there's power that he brings. He brings temptation. He brings temptation to our lives. He works on things that he knows that we're weak at, lies that maybe we've believed about ourselves or others or the world. And it can come in all sorts of forms. And I, I, I see it in my own life. I see it in others' lives. This tempting, this luring us. And one thing I've noticed is that um, I think he can be active in basically any temptation, but there are times when he's particularly active. And, and I have worked 
as a pastor with people, I've seen this in my own life, where there's a particular temptation someone's struggling with, and it's, and there, it's just the sense of overwhelming temptation is so strong that I, I know it's the enemy. Uh, and, and if you had a temptation scale, you could have one to ten, right? And I think in our sinfulness, you know, typically we can be tempted one to three. We, we're tempted, we're drawn in. But what happens is as we give ourselves to something, uh, maybe we give ourselves to that sin, um, we, we engage it and somehow he gets involved and he starts to leverage it. And now all of a sudden it's not just a one to three, but it's a nine to a ten on that scale. Um, I believe that's what he does in, in some of the very destructive sins we're aware of, uh, addictions and, and uh, behavior, compulsive behaviors. They start out with dabbling and they end up becoming a controlling thing where there's just it's overwhelming temptation. I don't think that's just you. I don't think that's just the natural you. I'm not saying that it isn't part of the natural you. You might have a disposition to those things. But the enemy gets in here, we've learned in this section, and he leverages those, those things and he ups the, ups the power the, the, of that temptation to a 9 or a 10. Personally, I had some time, it was uh, the other summer actually, uh, where I was wrestling through some areas in my life and I was uh, studying the Word and reading about uh, godly people who walked in obedience in this area, and I shared with others, had them praying for me, and I was just wrestling. I didn't want to give in to, to temptations, um, and, and it just felt overwhelming. It's like, I couldn't shake it. I don't want that. Why is it always pressing in on me? And I just had a thought, you know what? The devil's at work in this. This isn't just me. And so I actually prayed in line with that, and I took authority in Christ's name, and I, I just said, any, any, you know, I don't remember what, exactly what I said, but basically any any evil spirit associated with this, in Christ's name, I, I tell you to, to leave. I want nothing of this. It has no place in me. I belong to Jesus. Go. And you know what happens? In that instant, it was like, boom. The sense of burden and temptation went from a 9 or a 10 down to a 3. It was dramatic. And, and, I, and it, it made me realize, wow, all this time I thought it was all me. And I was looking at my own heart thinking, oh, i got to work harder, read more, get pray more. Get others to pray for me. Um, i got to do more because it's in me. The problem's with me. And there was a problem with me. I mean, there was a foothold there to, in some sense, but I had kind of worked on that and moved past that. And now there was this lingering affliction from the enemy. And when I prayed and took authority, there was a marked reduction in the sense of temptation. And then God's used that tremendously to help me. So temptation, that is one of the things he does. He lies and he tempts us. We see that clearly in Scripture. Another thing that he does, which is a major play for him, a major part of his schemes, is accusation and condemnation. They go together. He loves to accuse and condemn. And we see this in Scripture. Re Revelation 12, this section of Scripture that's talking about his ultimate overthrow, it calls him in verse 10 the accuser of our brothers. He's the accuser. In Job 1, that's what he does. He accuses Job before God and says, you know, Job isn't what you think he is. Take his stuff away and he'll... He'll curse you. He does the same thing in Zechariah as, as this uh, high priest is before the Lord in this vision. He accuses him of being unrighteous. He, he's accuser of the brethren. He loves to accuse. He loves to bring condemnation. He loves to point out what's wrong and how you're unworthy. That's, that's, he's called the accuser of the brethren. And that couples with the previous one, doesn't it? Right? Because if he can tempt you, and can lure you in and get you to give in to it, now he's got the ground to say, look at you. What a loser. You, how do you think you belong to God? 
How could a Christian ever do something like that? You're not a Christian. You're just a phony. And you're never going to be anything but this. And he, he lies again and again and he works with condemnation. And he lures us in to steal and to kill and to, to destroy us. He loves to do that. He wants to undermine our sense of our identity and our forgiveness in Christ. He wants to, to get us to doubt that. Re- uh, Romans 8.1 tells us clearly there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Christ has paid for the believer's sin. And that's the wonderful good news. Christ went to the cross, shed His blood to pay for our sins. And He paid for our sins. In full, all of our sins, and rose again as, as God's guarantee of the victory over sin and death. Our sin. They're all paid for. There's no more pain. There's no condemnation. We are justified. We're counted righteous in Christ. No matter what we might feel, no matter what the devil says, we are no longer condemned. We are free and forgiven, and we are now empowered. Romans 8, you can read down further to this new life in the power of the Spirit to obey to be holy, to be more and more like Christ. That's who we are. That's the truth. And if you are struggling with a sense of condemnation, let me tell you clearly, that's not God. It's not God. That sense of I'm not worthy, I can't be His child because I did this, that's demonic. Do not entertain that as the voice of God. It's not. There's no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's forgiveness and there's power in the Holy Spirit in this new life to live in holiness. He wants to get you off of that truth, off of the forgiveness of your sins, off of the the new life that He gives you, onto self-absorption. And He wants to get you there because if He can get you there, He can do a couple things. He can get you to think, well, I'm, I'm not forgiven and I'm not a Christian or feel like that. And now it's easier to slip back into the old sin because, hey, whatever, I'm a failure. I'll just keep on failing. What does it matter? Or the other side of it is that we say, no, no, we don't want to do it. And then we do it in our own strength and we live in legalism, which says, now I'm going to work harder to to establish that I'm not a sinner. And I'm going to do this and I'm going to get it all right. And I'm I'm never going to do this thing anymore. And and we we get caught into legalism, which I'll cover later, is, is another play that he has. And so whether it's legalism or or license going into sin those are both what the enemy wants and that's what he does through condemnation is to get you into that place and what god has for us is there's no condemnation you're forgiven you are free your sins are paid for and you are a new creation we'll talk about this later in the armor the helmet is part of our identity we belong to jesus we are rescued this is who we are we are his we are the forgiven ones we are the empowered ones the spirit of god lives in us the law of God is written on our hearts and He is with us to help us walk in more and more obedience. So condemnation related to that discouragement. There's a couple of verses that the enemy loves to get a hold of us and discourage us. A couple passages. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 6-11. If we, we have it up. Excellent. This is an interesting section. And we're familiar perhaps with verse 11 where it says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs or in the NIV schemes. So we may be familiar with that, right? 
I know that one. That's the not, we're not supposed to be ignorant of his schemes. But what's the context to, to what Paul says here? The, the context to this is discouragement. There's a situation with a brother, and you can read it further, a situation with somebody who had some sort of serious sin in their lives, so serious that the church had to put him outside the church. They say, look, you can't, you can't claim to walk with Christ and do these things, so they put him out for the purpose of repentance. That's the goal in church discipline. So he's put out. We don't know what it is. It, it could have been sexual immorality, because that's mentioned earlier. It could have been divisiveness. We're, we're not sure. But he's put out. And Paul says, now that the guy's repented, restore him. Reaffirm forgiveness. Reaffirm your love. And because and, he... He does not want him to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Do you see that earlier in the end of verse 7? He doesn't want this guy to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. He doesn't want this guy to be discouraged and feel condemned. He wants to restore this guy. He wants him to be restored. And that's the context where he says, so we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. His design is lead this guy in discouragement and despair and to bring division to the church as well. We'll touch on that shortly. Let me give you another verse, another section that will, I think, help with this. 1 Peter 5, 6-10. through 10. There's a little paragraph at the end of this wonderful letter in 1 Peter. And we're perhaps familiar with this one. There's At the beginning it says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. We're perhaps familiar with that. I love, love that, you know, humble ourselves. He exalts. I cast my cares on him. When there's anxieties, when things I'm worried about, I'm supposed to cast them on him because he cares for us. Then the passage goes on, and it, and it starts talking about the devil, right? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And you might think, well, is this just kind of like popcorn ideas from Peter? You know? Well, here's the one. Oh, that's right. Be humble. Oh, another thing. Cast your anxieties. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh that's right. I forgot. The devil. Just say something about the devil. Is, is that what he's doing? Well, well, look at the, our, the flow of the discussion here. He tells us to resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This section of Scripture is about trusting God in adversity. Trusting God in suffering. Trusting God in things that would make you anxious. That's what the section's about. And that's the, the whole letter of 1 Peter really talks about that. that the idea that we, as believers, live in a world where, where we will suffer. That's the context here. And so, when it talks about the devil in the middle of this, why does it do that? Because the way that the devil would consume you, he's looking for someone to devour, is by devouring you with anxiety over your difficulties. That's what it's talking about. That's what's going on here. The call here is to trust God, to cast our anxieties on the Lord. Those things that tempt us and concern us and worry us and can overwhelm us, to cast them on the Lord. The sufferings we go through, the difficulties we go through, to cast them on the Lord. Because that's where we find answer. And if we don't cast them on the Lord, what happens? The devil, we get anxious, and the devil consumes us, right? He takes over and, and consumes us. 
If it goes far enough, it, it really would consume us. Now, I, I think I experience this sort of thing all the time. I imagine you do as well. Just this past week, this is a common strategy of the, of the devil. And God's in control of all this. Let's not forget that. Important context here. But nevertheless, the devil's active, and he'll use adversity in your life to overwhelm you with anxiety, to consume you, to devour you. Just this past week, I misplaced my wallet. And this was my little anxiety for me. I, it may seem silly for you, but for me, uh, it, and, and I can be very silly, so that's okay if you think it is. Um, it started out, I lost my wallet. I didn't know where I had put it. I had, um, it had a full day. I had been with people. I had to visit different places. And then I went to the gym, and I came home, and I took out my pants out of my bag, and the wallet was not in my pants, which I always do. And I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty disciplined. Like my wallet is either in my the pants somewhere, although right now it's not. It's it's in my office. <laughs> On Sundays I put it in my bag, so that's all right. Um, but it's either in my in my pants somewhere or on my top of my bureau because I forget little things, and so that's how I get by. Um, so, you know, I, I couldn't find my wallet, and I thought, well, I think I, I think I left it in my office. Put it somewhere in my bag. My, I had left my bag here. Left it in there, and so I waited till the next day, and I went in and looked through. It's not there. I went, oh, no, looking through some more. And then I started thinking, where is my wallet? And, tried, and I went through my whole day, the previous day, and then started backtracking to find my wallet uh, because, I, because it's my wallet. And this is... This is where it started to get into anxiety because I started thinking, oh no, what will happen if they get a hold of the credit card? The church credit card has like a big limit on it because we're a big group. Um, and they'll start charging stuff and all the money will be gone. And then they'll get into my, my bank account too. Now the credit card's nice because they cover you when they, there are fraudulent expenses. But the, the credit card with the bank isn't like that. They're going to get the bank and then my license is in there Identity theft, that's what's next. They're going to totally ruin our credit and stuff. And then, and then um, part of a side story was also like, I'm really not, I'm getting worse with memory. Maybe I'm going to go senile in the next year or two, and then what's going to happen? My, what's going to happen to my wife and my kids? They're not going to, I mean, without me and, and the church and so forth. And so I'm going down this road of anxiety and, and, and speculating all that could happen just because I lost my wallet. You've never had something like that, have you? And, and thankfully in it, I was preparing for this Sunday and in First Peter 5 and other places, and I started realizing, remembering, cast your anxieties on the Lord. Cast them on the Lord. Keep, keep casting. And so I prayed through it. I prayed through my wallet. I prayed and asked for it to be found, but I also said, Lord, if it's not going to be found, I pray you just take care of it. I pray you use it for your glory. Help me not to you know, fixate on this. Help me to look to you. And, and it really helped. It made a big difference. I I didn't go down there. I, I can go to ridiculous places. The, I can be, become, you know, Henny Penny, the sky is falling because of some little thing. That's First Peter 5. The devil devouring me with anxiety and, and consuming my day. And it can go to all sorts of places. And you might have more serious, you probably do have more serious sufferings that you go through. It's no different. No matter what it is. To live in this world is to suffer. And it's common. And we should ask God to answer 
those sufferings and relieve them, but more importantly, we're to cast those anxieties on Him and keep on casting and praying and giving them to the Lord and asking Him to answer that and thus protect us from the devil's schemes. Well, I have a lot more schemes and we have a little bit of time, so I'm going to go fairly quickly. I will again make these notes available to you. Um, but uh, I want you to be able to be equipped with them. But let's cover some things quickly. There's other schemes he has. Heresy is part of his scheme. He, he's behind every false doctrine, everything. And a, a heresy is basically a denial of who Christ is and what he did. And so if he can't get something in there to deny who Christ is, then he will deny what he did. First Timothy 4 tells us that, that uh, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Ephesians 4 talks about deceitful schemes and these false teachings, heresy, teaching false things about Jesus, denying his person and his work. And so anytime that's going on, know that that's demonic. It's not just an, an idea, another equal idea. When, when people deny Christ, who he is, he's the God-man come in the flesh, died on the cross, rose again. If they deny who he is, they'll deny that he's God, they'll deny that he came in the flesh, they'll deny some aspects of who he is, or they'll deny what he did, or they'll add to what he did. You know, he didn't, he died for sins, yeah, but he didn't die, like, for all your sins. He died for the ones you did in the past, and now you've got to add to it. You've got to do good from now on. That, those sort of things. That, that's a heresy, that's from the enemy. A, another heresy is legalism. And usually he gets Christians through this heresy more than just outright denial of Christ. It's really interesting in Colossians chapter 2. It says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. And, and he goes on. He's basically saying, uh, to the Colossians, you're getting into legalism, but it's interesting, he says, that you had died to the elemental spirits of the world. That what he's saying there is behind legalism are spirits of the world, are demonic spirits at work. Legalism is a denial of Christ, of what he did. It's denial that his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient it's saying i have to do something to add to it to make the father pleased with me and if i keep on doing this thing then i'll he'll stay pleased with me and accept it now we have a, re a relationship with the lord and when you sin you you harm that relationship so i'm not trying to deny that but you're never kicked out of the family you still belong to him you're still beloved and so when we repent as a believer, we're saying, Lord, I want to restore my intimacy, my closeness to you. I want to turn from those ways and be with you. But it isn't, I'm out, I'm kicked out of the family. So legalism is another scheme of the, the devil. And it's just too widely accepted among God's people. We accept it. And the, the scary thing is, is sometimes we think that what is legalism is actually devout Christianity. Oh, he's really serious. Or she's really devout when she or he may be a legalist who is doing all this stuff because they're trying to earn favor with God and maintain favor with God in a way that is not resting in what Christ has done. This is why Paul says in Galatians 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? When you give in to legalism, when I give in to legalism, we are being deceived by the enemy. We are falling under this scheme. And it's, it's a terrible deception. It's not okay. And we shouldn't accept it in our own lives. And we should run to Christ to find forgiveness and life in Him. Some other schemes. He brings in division to the church. He loves to divide the church. James 3 talks about uh, the sort of attitude that's behind division. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So when there's this rivalry and divisiveness, instead of peace-loving, trying to promote peace around the gospel, when we're divisive, when we're contentious over things that are not the main thing, that's demonic. Understand that. Divisiveness in the church, apart from the gospel. When there's a denial of the gospel, we are to respond and to divide as needed. Because the gospel is the essence of our faith. But apart from that, when there's division, it's demonic. So understand that. And understand in our own hearts, when we feel that, that that's the enemy. He wants to tempt us. And it can be over all sorts of silly stuff, right? I mean, the decor that we have or whatever. Um, should the front door be red or should it be white? You know, it doesn't really matter. The churches have divided and we could divide over this as well. He does lots of other things. Uh, blinding unbelievers, idolatry, the occult, world manipulation. Don't have time to touch on that. He uses adversity. That's the second major category. Somehow I ran out of time. So I won't be able to touch all these, but I will have the notes. He, he brings adversity. The scripture teaches us he can bring things like sickness. The woman who had a disabling spirit, she was sick for 18 years. He can affect weather. That's what happened with Job. He brings persecution. Revelation 2, uh, Jesus is talking to the church. He says, behold, the devil is about to throw you, some of you into prison. So he's behind persecution. When there's persecution of Christians. And if you think about it, it does, persecution doesn't make sense, right? I mean, if you back away and think about it, why generally Christians in whatever country they are in are good citizens, right? We're told to be that. They're good citizens. They're considerate neighbors. They're good people to have around generally. Why would they be persecuted with such hatred where people want to burn them and kill them and burn their buildings down? I mean, it's, it's insane, right? It makes sense. This is the enemy. This is the devil behind it, inciting people towards hatred towards believers. And, and it's just a reality that's out there. He works, and persecution is part of his work, and it happens all over the world. It even happens here at times, and it may happen more. Last October, the shooter in Roseburg, Oregon, uh, when he encountered someone, he asked people, are you a Christian or not? If they weren't Christians, he wounded them. If they were Christian, he executed them. Ten people, I believe they all were Christians, were executed. That sort of hatred comes from the enemy. He can do other things. He can hinder God's work. Um, we see that in Scripture. He can even bring death in certain contexts. Uh, particularly we see this nowadays. We see this in cultures where uh, there are witch doctors and people really give themselves to the demonic. And there are people who die through curses. And there's good news too. Uh, I've heard uh, stories through firsthand. Perhaps you have as well. 
of where the gospel comes in and people get freed from all that stuff. It's glorious. It's wonderful. Finally, uh, and quickly, just the third category is affliction. He brings affliction. And the scripture is clear that, that there are afflictions there are afflictions at various levels. There's afflictions that are so serious that, that they are what we would call properly de- uh, demonization. Now, in older Bible translations, the word demon possession is used. But that's, that's a misnomer uh, because it, it isn't demon possession. Uh, demons themselves cannot possess those made in God's image uh, truly, fully. And certainly not a believer. Um, we are owned by God, and they can't possess, but they can afflict. And that affliction can become so great that, that the influence of the demonic can predominate in someone's life. And when it becomes so great, when it becomes predominant like that, that's where we would say this is demonization. So it moves from temptation and just affliction and oppression that we all experience to demonization. Now the person is coming under this influence to such a degree that it's affecting who they are. And, and it can, there can be all levels of that as well. Um, I would understand that someone has kind of crossed the line into that when there are certain manifestations in their life. Um, certain manifestations, certainly there can be the physical stuff we see in Scripture, the calling out and things like that, voices that are not their own, that, that's the more dramatic stuff. But it can also be when people have evil thoughts in their minds that are that are overwhelming and incessant. And often when it's demonic, it's put in the second person. Instead of just a thought like, oh, I have this bad thought, I don't like that. It's, why don't you do this? Or who do you think you are? And, and it, can, it can go there. Now, we could all have that happen to us, but, but, but when it's incessant and overwhelming. And often... When people have that level of affliction uh, around the things of Christ, there's, it, it, it rears up. So when there's worship or even someone gets prayed for and the name of Christ gets proclaimed, all of a sudden all these things will come to their mind. All this stuff will happen. And there might, if it's a, a serious affliction, there might even be a, some sort of manifestation. There's that level of affliction. And it, we see this commonly in Scripture. Jesus' ministry, he drove out demons. That was the most predominant miracle, really, was, was deliverance from demons. And these were the covenant people of God, by the way. These were people who were God's people, struggling with demonic oppression. And, and this is, I think, much more common than we realize. We certainly see it in, in other cultures much more flagrantly. I believe the enemy tries to keep under the radar in our culture. Because if he were manifesting like it goes on in some of the other countries, where there's stuff, I mean, blatant stuff uh, going on, like we see in Scripture, I think we all would be like up at arms, like let's deal with this. But if he can stay under the radar here and kind of get us to think, well, this, you know, this, the devil's really not active, but just to come into our lives and, and kind of work in people's lives in these ways through things like addictions, bitterness, other just even frailties to come in, to, to mental frailties and come in and twist in his lies in there, he's safe. But we need to recognize this is a reality. And, and, and if you are struggling or have struggled, please let us know. Because in all this, guys, this is the playbook, and we're just about done. If it didn't come up, uh, we've got to remember that this is the playbook. This is what he does. But, but we've got a superior game strategy <laughs> in our hands. We have Jesus. He's 
died for sins, who's rose again, and all authority in heaven and earth has been given us. So there's victory. I, I love in singing more than conquerors. There's no chain that can't be broken. And his, the enemy's lie would be, no, this chain will never be broken. This is your, your lot for life, is to be under this oppression. No, no, no. There's no chain that can't be broken. And Jesus is in the business of freeing captives. The church has historically practiced this. The early church, actually, it was standard for anybody, anybody who came to Christ and was going to be baptized would go through deliverance ministry. Everybody. Somewhere along the line, they stopped doing that. I think that's through our harm. And, and I would be glad to make it a regular practice for, for people, for all of us, people who come to Christ, to pray. Just pray blessings. And if there's anything going on, we deal with that. It doesn't have to be dramatic because Jesus rules over all. Well, we're going to... Uh, close shortly, and I just want you to look back at all that we've talked about. I know it's a lot of material, and just prayerfully consider, is there one play, one scheme of the devil we just need to be aware of? And as you think about that, remember this, this wonderful verse, 1 John 4, 4. You can put that up. It says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. It's speaking of evil spirits. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's the promise. So as you think about this scheme, remember this truth, and just bring it to the Lord. Just take a minute to pray, and then we'll close in song together. Okay? Let, let me pray for us first, and then we'll do that. Lord,